0: Pretty sweet uh, backdrop you got there, background.
1: Yeah, yeah. I don't know. It's, uh, yeah, it, it helps actually sometimes because like I, I'm just out of my room here in Guelph, and oh, are you? I, yeah, I'm actually in Guelph right now. Yeah. Okay. I'm. Yeah, and the the light kind of shines into the room weird, and it creates a lot of weird distortion and stuff in the video. So I found it adding something to the background works better down here at least. Well, that's yeah.
0: that's like me in the light. Distortion off my top of my bald skull. (laughs) Hey crew, welcome back to the Skippy Report. On today's episode, we have Gavin Brady. So, uh, who are you, man?
1: (laughs) I'm, uh, as Keith said there, I'm Gavin Brady, so I'm, uh, I guess... Who am I? Eh? That's a, that's a deep question, Keith. Um, <laughs>
0: yeah. Well, that's kind of hard for a 20, 20 year old to answer.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm, yeah, I'll be 20 right now. I'll be 21 this year. Yeah. Born in 2000. Um, but yeah, I guess
0: I'm. What do you do? Where do you live? How you know me? Yeah.
1: Yeah. So I'm uh, I'm from Port Hope or Coburg. I guess you could say. I live just North of it. Um, I guess I, I guess we met back in pray, what was it, like six, seven years ago there, pray, keep now telemark skiing at Bermacombe there. My uh, my mom introduced me to you. You kind of helped me get into the sport. It was, uh, it was a cool time for sure. You know, it's, you especially look to it, like how, like I think my skiing and even your skiing as well, how we've developed and stuff over the, like the last, 10 years there's definitely things change right you're on ntn now things are pretty cool
0: i know when we can get together ski i'll I'll get you because i have a spare pair of ntn boots and gavin's got feet like i have and he can get on some of my gear and try ntn because when you're a big guy that's the toughest thing to do is get into new equipment because demo fleets don't have sasquatch gear not that gavin's a sasquatch when you if you ever see pictures of he and i He's the little telly bro that I haul around all over the place.
1: I I still look like a a little kid next to you (laughs) at at (laughs) 6'2". I know
0: my buddy who's the uh, head coach of the U.S. Telemark team, Keith Rodney, he just made the uh, PSIA demo team that goes to Interski. I think he's on there for the next three years, and I think he's about 5'6 on a good day, and he posted a photo of the other guy who got awarded being on the team And I was like, dude, how come you always find the holes to stand in when you're next to big guys? (laughs) So, yeah, we're going to talk about it about Telemark. But uh, the other thing that I think is really cool, and I've always had a fond heart for uh, kids in uh, farm country, is uh, Gavin goes to University of Guelph, which is a big ag university up here in Canada. And uh, what program are you in, Gavin? Because I think it's kind of cool what he's doing.
1: Yeah, so I'm at the University of Guelph right now. So I'm under the uh, Ontario Agricultural College here in a four-year program, and um, so I'm doing a major in crops, horticulture, and turf grass. And uh, yeah, so it's uh, it's pretty cool. It's definitely one of the the leading programs worldwide for agriculture, which is you know it's it's nice to be on the forefront of things.
0: I, I have to interject here because when you said turf grass, I was like, I could just see you being the Bill Murray character from Caddyshack. You no, know, he's got special <laughs> yeah. turf grass you can play 18 holes during the day and then cut a little bit and take it home and smoke it right
1: <laughs> yeah i'll be honest i am uh, i'm mostly focusing on focusing on the uh, crops and horticulture side of things rather than the turf grass i haven't really taken any courses there but um it's actually kind of neat like i know for me they they amalgamated all three of those things into one major but they've um for the incoming class next year they've uh they've decided to split them all out so it's going to be a bunch of division there, which would be kind of interesting.
0: So what would you do like working in turf grass, like get a degree (laughs) and then work at golf courses and city parks and that sort of stuff.
1: Yeah, exactly. Golf course management, uh, like commercial lawns, like school lawns, stuff like that. Um, you know, like there's like, even like to sports arenas and stuff like that, you get looking like there's, it's endless really. There's huge amount, like the turf industry is huge. It's right. it's, It's way bigger than most people actually realize.
0: So okay, so you're not in the turf grass part. You're in the other part, and so yeah. give us a little bit of information about that.
1: So yeah, I'm under. Uh, I'm focusing mainly on the crops and horticulture, and uh, kind of I guess my passion from there stem from. I'm my, my, my family uh, were cash crop farmers, and um, I've actually as well for the past four years on the side. I've been um, I've been running uh, my own business called Midlock Farm. So it's been a market garden that's been rapidly expanding, which is kind of cool. And, uh, yeah, I guess that's kind of really what led me into the, the, the crops and horticulture side of things rather than just the, the crop side of things.
0: So when you say you're a cash crop farmer, how much acreage does your family farm?
1: Yeah, so we're, we're farming a few thousand acres. Uh, we're certainly not the biggest boys on the street, but uh, we're a decent size out there. And, um, and the crop, yeah,
0: crops you guys grow?
1: Yeah, so we're growing uh, corn, soybeans, and wheat. Right. And, um, yeah, and we, uh, we implement cover crops and stuff like that as well. On a, uh, on a basis that we're always trying to keep that soil covered, and building it, and increasing our organic matter, you know.
0: And that's um, the, the uh, Gavin can be found on a couple of handles on Instagram, right?
1: Yeah, I can be found uh, with my name. I can also be found uh, under Midlock Farms on Facebook and uh, Zero Till Farmer on uh, Instagram.
0: So since Kieran moved out into the country and I've been, uh, helping her with her kind of homestead, as I say yeah. in bracket and quotation marks with my hands, um, I've learned a lot about no-till or zero-till farming. So mm-hmm. maybe you can tell the listeners what no-till or zero-till farming is.
1: Yeah. So I think there's kind of three stages of tillage, I guess you could say there's uh, like you've got conventional tillage, which is what you, what most people would imagine. It's uh the farmers going out there with a plow or a disc, and they're they're really working up that earth. They're 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 creating a, they're creating temporary tilth within the soil to make it really kind of like spongy and soft. And it, like I I I'm against it, but I will admit it does create a really nice seed bed that has proven yield leads to slightly higher yields. So when we start moving towards um, what mostly would refer to as minimum tillage, that's kind of when you're getting more into using like machinery that's maybe only doing like the top inch or two or maybe even like a quarter inch and it's just you're just breaking the crust on the top of the surface there just to stop um creating like a like you can get like a pan layer on the surface as well right
0: um, you mean and like and, that um, crusty the crustiness yeah. that's hard to break apart to to plant Exactly. In, right
1: so yeah a lot of conventional mm-hmm. tillage is aimed at kind of breaking that as well as it also lets you uh incorporate if you're broadcasting like dry fertilizer onto your fields. and right. allows you to incorporate that really well. So that way it's not just sitting on the surface and it's not prone to runoff and stuff, which is one of the big uh, nutrient management uh, stewardship goals that I think all farmers are undertaking is reducing um, nutrient runoff. Yeah. And you that- know,
0: it was interesting because when I used to teach and I would <laughs> teach about uh, water systems, which is a unit in grade eight science, mm-hmm. and we would talk about watersheds and I let the kids know about runoff and and you know uh, growing up as a kid and working on farms one of the farms near the cottage they weren't allowed to spread their manure it was a dairy farm and Mm -hmm. we would build big piles of manure at the back of their property and um and it would just naturally degrade into the soil because we were on a slope that ended up in the lake and Mm -hmm. you know we They didn't want the manure in the lake because it fed some of the uh, invasive species. And then similarly, uh, in recent years, we've noticed some gigantic blooms of the invasive species in our lake uh, because they like phosphates, correct? Yeah. And (coughs) as part of fertilizer, some of the farmers, they've been altering the uh, drainage uh, points at the fields, which drains into the creeks and drains into uh, into our lake and we've had we're lucky because we have a group of people who are stewards at our lake and mm-hmm. try to help control this stuff and help educate the farmers not to do things like that but yeah we've had some pretty big invasive blooms of uh species that don't belong in our lake so
1: yeah for yeah for sure like you get looking down towards like Lake saint Clair there on kind of like the southwestern edge of ontario and it's there's some there's some bad algae blooms down there, but kind of one of the neat studies that I was that I was looking at is um like I, I'm not saying that farmers aren't guilty. They they certainly are. Um, I think everybody needs to be working towards uh nutrient management and like doing like the right time, the right practice, the right rate, those kind of things. Right. Um, but like one of the one of the big things that everybody doesn't look at for some reason is um one of the worst culprits for it. Is lawns within towns. Right. People will toss nitrogen fertilizer on there any time of the year, and then the, the, what people forget is there's there's city drainage there. So then the first time it rains, it all goes down the culvert if it didn't get worked in appropriately. Yeah, and and then, it, and then it's in the lake.
0: You know what? I was just watching uh, an American news uh, thing, and you know, this past week we had Earth Day, and they were focusing on Earth Day stuff and in and around New York City, and all of the fecal matter and E. coli that's in the Hudson River. And so some of the hosts were being educated on what happens to municipal wastewater treatment systems. And there are a lot of people out there who do not know that a storm drain goes directly into the watershed.
1: Yeah. Like I know, like, you know, just North of us there, Keith, you look at Peterborough, for instance, I swear anytime there's a a rain event over six inches, it's, it's always kind of in the, the sublime news, I guess you could say that they, they're writing letters basically asking for permission to release because they're they're full right after a small rain. Yeah. That's that's the nature of the beast, but it's, it's a, it's it's an issue that we definitely have to fix moving forward.
0: Yeah. And the other interesting thing is when I used to teach, I would, uh, you know, we'd always, we're an hour and a bit east of Toronto, which is not good because the prevailing winds come from the West (laughs) and uh, whatever gets, gets discharged out into the lake from their wastewater management systems ends right up coming down our way and ends up on our beaches anyway so i would tell the kids in the old parts of toronto the there are a lot of homes that have their eaves trough that are hooked up into the sanitary sewers so as you and if people wanted to check this out you can just go online and see how do actually the uh a municipality of Windsor-Essex has a really great video on YouTube that talks about their wastewater treatment centers. And it, it would show how the uh, settling tanks, where all the solids that we flush down our toilet, settle into the tanks and then water rises above it, and then how the storm drains that would empty into the sanitary sewers overflow and disturb everything in that fecal matter just overflows and goes untreated into the lakes and yeah, the rivers kind of
1: yeah head right down there into lake erie yeah yeah and i think what ties back into that earlier is your, what you're saying when we were talking earlier about tillage there and i think one of the biggest things is is when when we move to a no-till system is we're really not disturbing that we can get that living root mass year round and that that's huge right because it creates so much more stability within the soil correct and then that's that stability means that we're not going to be when we're properly applying these nutrients, it allows you to hold it there. Because one of the biggest issues is people think it's just the fertilizer running it off. But a lot of times the fertilizer binds to the soil particles. Right. And then it's actually the soil particles that are eroding. And then they, uh, and then they become suspended in the lakes is the issue. It's that it's those fine soil particles that are bound to the fertilizer. That's in the lake is the issue. It's not actually just the fertilizer. So one of the biggest ways of reducing that is through reducing our soil erosion through water and wind.
0: Yeah. Well, and you know what, when you say wind as you're, Explaining this, I remember being a kid on my uncle's farm back in the 1970s. We would plow and disc our fields and that sort of stuff. And through the winter, we would have brown snow because the winds would come along. If we didn't have a complete coverage of snow in the fields, you would see snow drifts that were full of wind-eroded soil. And that would get carried along and (coughs) contaminate and could even uh, strangle watersheds because there's uh not enough oxygen in the water there's too much till or uh, silt in the water because of all of the, this excessive runoff
1: yeah because for sure what happens right is is the nitrogen hits it and then the, that when it gets into the water the the algae populations just explode because it's fertilizer and then but the algae needs oxygen is the issue so then it eats up all the oxygen and then right. the algae dies but yeah. then what happens is because you got these massive mats of dead algae, they stop blocking the sunlight, and it just it shuts that process down.
0: Yeah. And and if people pay attention in the news in the last few years, we would hear about green algae blooms in Lake Erie mm-hmm. because it's such a shallow lake and there's so much intensive uh, agriculture, population, all that sort of stuff in southwestern Ontario and Ohio. Uh, yeah, and it all drains into the part. lake.
1: There's just too many people in a small area. Exactly. <laughs>
0: Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So what else, what else are you doing in your or in your uh program or your education at Guelph?
1: Um, yeah, so that's actually Guelph's super cool. Like we've got we've got an amazing community here. It's it's kind of it's different than a lot of other programs. Um, in the sense that I think probably the biggest part of being part of the like the Ontario Agricultural College here is there's a there's an amazing community between all four years, which is kind of cool. So right. Like those, the fourth years are welcome in the first years. Like we've got welcome back barbecues and all those kind of things. And it's, it's, it creates a community, but not only that, it creates amazing, amazing, like relationships moving forward. Like, you know, people all over Ontario, you know, people for business, you know, all sorts of things like that. So, right. You know, fostering these relationships is definitely a big part of it here, which is something I didn't realize ahead of time, but it's, it's, it's definitely manifested into an important part for me. Right. And then one of the other really cool things here is, um, just like it, again, it comes back to the there's world class uh, professors here that are doing br- lead like groundbreaking uh, research and stuff like that, which is it's really cool to be right on the forefront of that
0: now I know in some of our uh, travels to uh, ski events and that sort of stuff yeah. we talked about your your education now you're also working on some stuff I think with like i'm I'm gonna hypothesize hybridization of seeds or yeah yeah, okay. so I'm actually
1: next uh next uh fall i'll be starting my uh, research project so that's going to be uh like 365 days is what that's going to take and i'm going to be looking at the uh, aspiration of nitrogen out of uh, the soil and then the uh the reuptake of it through the plant leaves which is going to be pretty cool so that's that's kind of the direction i'm heading right now with my education is uh, looking at the research stream for sure and uh, trying to help make these plants more efficient in our systems and help control all sorts of things.
0: That's kind of cool because now, now now we're nerding out on yeah. agriculture stuff, and then when I listen to Josh Madsen's, uh Free Heel Life uh, podcast, they nerd out on skiing. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I can go both ways for sure, but uh, <laughs> agriculture is certainly uh, is my my passion.
0: Um, so what what's the advantage of uh, no till on a on a field like in, in a practical amount other than? not disturbing the soil, preventing wind erosion, soil erosion, that sort of stuff. Uh, Is there an economic benefit to it?
1: Yeah, there definitely, there is if you do it right. It's kind of a backwards uh, statement. But um, yeah, like I think uh, the the Ontario Ministry of like OMAFRA, like with Ontario Ag there, I think they've stated that to do a pass of tillage costs $18. So that's that's not cheap.
0: Is that per acre?
1: That's per acre. Okay. And that's per pass. And there's, there's guys doing five passes of tillage. Wow. You know, they'll, they'll disc and they'll, they'll plow and they'll rip. And yeah, whereas you go in there with no-till. So you've immediately lost all of those passes, which is savings in your pocket to a certain extent. You're not spending the money on your upkeep of the equipment. You don't have to own the equipment. You don't have to maintain it. Right. Um, and then you transfer transition over to no-till equipment and no-till equipment is slightly special because it is designed for working in ground that hasn't been disturbed and the structure hasn't been uh, changed. Right? And right. So you're generally working in harder ground. Right. So it is, <clears throat> it is slightly different equipment. Um, but that's, that's just part of your transition to it. Once you have the equipment, you have it for doing it. Right. And then there is, there is generally a slight yield drag with no-till. Oh, is there? Okay. That was my yeah, next question. Like if you look at corn, Think uh corn has about a, a 1.2 to a 1.5 uh, bushel per acre yield drag.
0: Right in Ontario. When, and when you power. talk about yield drag, you mean like a, a lower yield. Yeah.
1: yeah. So like if you had been doing conventional tillage, you wouldn't have had that yield loss. Right. But people people always forget, oh, the yield drag. But the thing is, is we just save $50 on not doing tillage per acre. Right. So we're losing eight dollars through the yield drag, but we saved 50, you know. Right. So you're really you could say, ah, like forty two dollars right yeah is uh is the difference so that to me that that economically works right um yeah which is kind of neat
0: and and we're seeing a lot of farmers moving to that these days
1: yeah it's super out west it's everybody's no-till oh really but yeah everybody's no-till out, so west when, we out got,
0: in the prairies
1: yeah like our prairie provinces super low precipitation levels and uh, the ground's generally a bit sandier, so it's really important to hold it there. Right. They, their biggest battle at West is holding moisture year-round. And if you're, in,
0: if you're plowing it or disking it, you're exposing much more soil and yeah. particles, and then that moisture gets released into the atmosphere.
1: Exactly. You're opening that soil up, and it just evaporates. Right. Whereas here in Ontario, we actually, one of our biggest issues is is we generally have too much water.
0: Right. Um, Believe it or not, on those really hot days where it's, you know, 30, 30 degrees Celsius and 98% humidity?
1: Well, well, that's the thing is, in our spring and fall, we've got too much water, and then in the middle of our summer, we don't have enough. Right. So we, we go from an excess to a deficit pretty quick here, and that that's just part of Ontario. We, it's in extremes, right? We live right. in a northern climate. Yeah. Um, and compared to our friends down south, anyways, we certainly do. Right. Um, but that's one of the things with uh, no-till. No-till is a lot more popular in Ontario, probably, from the 80s until about 2010 oh really yeah so a lot of people started moving over to minimum tillage kind of in the late 80s in ontario and it was it was all the rage that's when we that's when we transitioned fully to minimum till was 83 okay um but the thing is with ontario again what i was saying is because in our spring we've got that excess water right you generally have a slightly delayed start date because our fields are a bit wetter. Correct. And we have been mitigating that through the use of cover crops and having like a living mat. So that way we can, the soil structure's there and it can kind of hold the weight of the equipment better. So we're not leaving tracks. Right. Which is really important because that's the one, uh, number one yield robber that we can really control. Right. Aside from fertility is compaction.
0: Right. And that that's where you're starting to see the, uh, the uh, using of uh, tracked tractors. Yeah. Yeah, I know we were out, uh, near Stockdale and we were coming along, coming home and there's a machine out there with all the equipment and taking up the entire road plus a (laughs) shoulder as we're passing by on the shoulder, Sean looks and she couldn't believe the tracks. And I I explained to her how that is. It disperses the, uh, the pressure on the earth.
1: So tracks are, they're really neat, actually. So like you got your standard implement tires that you probably run at around 40 to 80 PSI. And those are bad, right? Cause that, that's yeah. pounds per square inch straight down on the ground yeah. in those areas. You're going to see reduced yield, but the, there's a neatness no more about tracks actually is a set of like wide tires that you can run down at four PSI are right. actually better than tracks. But the big advantage to tracks is if you're, are getting into wet conditions, they generally claw at the ground a bit more. So you're less likely to get stuck, which is why a lot of guys will go to them. Right. Because you still got that, you still got the low compaction and they're, they're stickier on the ground. Cause you got, they just, they pull harder. Right. Whereas right. a big wide tire. Yes. You know, you might have eight inches of flat tire on the ground, but it just people like tracks. They're kind of a novelty item, to be honest, you can, you can get about the same results with a set of a, uh, like uh, low pressure tires, right. but uh, right. they're, they're pretty neat.
0: Right. So, after you finish your uh, education, where do you see yourself?
1: That's what everybody <laughs> asks me, Keith. Of course.
0: <laughs> Working on your dad's farm?
1: <laughs> uh, maybe eventually, yeah, or in conjunction, anyways. Right. Probably not just for him. Um, yeah.
0: <laughs> I, don't, Advi- I don't Advising him.
1: He... <laughs> yeah. But he, says, he says I'm going to waste all his money. Um... <laughs>
0: <laughs> you, you're, yeah, just don't waste what you're doing now, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, I think I could definitely see myself probably doing some research for a little bit, or at least doing research in conjunction with it. There's some really good extensions that I could do that with, and right. working closely with farmers. Like I, I love research; I'm passionate about it. It's that's that's actually one of the, the neat things with farmers is, uh, you know, they people think oh, farmers are stuck in their ways, but they're actually some of the most forward people generally. The ones that are successful right. are the most forward people in terms of adopting new technologies. We're I know a little off topic my, there.
0: But my yeah. uncle, uh, I'm gonna say he's. 70, 72 yeah. now. But you know what? He was always an experimenter. Yeah. You know, and then as he got towards the end of his uh, dairy career and that sort of stuff, and, you know, he moved into poultry and heritage birds and that sort of stuff. He was growing turkeys in the barn. He didn't have any uh, cattle at the time. And uh, he was showing me the difference between his feed that he grew out in the field and mm-hmm. harvested and mixed versus another large company's feed and so he would put down his feed and the birds would come to it and then he would put down the company's feed and they would all leave his feed to go to the company's feed and he says if you look at the ingredients in their feed they're the exact same as his feed Hmm. he says there's got to be something else in there that attracts the birds to that company's feed
1: yeah like i could just be something as similar to as like a slight processing or grain kernel size and stuff like that there's, right. there's weird idiosyncrasies but for sure yeah
0: right right cool mm-hmm. but kind of going
1: back to probably where i'm heading is uh i definitely it's kind of up in the air to be honest but i definitely think uh right now i'm looking at working in research but i'm also uh as i said before i'm also looking at definitely growing uh, midlock farms more oh yeah um And kind of building that up, I I think that could definitely be something, whether it's going to continue to just be a a vegetable farm, likely not. Um, I think I could definitely see getting into, like, input sales and stuff like that. Right. Um, The selling seed, fertilizer, those kind of things, you know. Um, Everybody needs them, right? (laughs) Yeah,
0: exactly. Yeah, and especially right now, right? Because everybody with pandemic happening. and Everybody's going to garden now. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, Good segue into Midlock Farms and your uh, market garden. So give us a little, uh, beta yeah. on that.
1: So I started, uh, market gardening, what is it? Three, four, five years ago. Um, I started off at the Coburg Farmers Market there right? and it was a great, great start. Lovely community. Love, love them to bits down there. It's, it's awesome. And
0: you, and you even got an award or a grant or something like that. Yeah.
1: Correct? So to start off, it all actually started off with the youth, uh, entrepreneurship, uh, scholarship or grant they call it it's offered by the uh, government of ontario
0: Uh, i was a benefit of that also but i sold canoes
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah so it's a it was it's an awesome program and it helped me uh put down a little bit of capital right off the bat just kind of for some small things that i needed for my garden i think at that time i think i was only like a 60 by 60 garden or something which is big compared to a lot of people's gardens but a, a lot smaller than i am now um
0: how big is your garden now
1: oh the I think I'm up to. I might be pushing four acres this year. Wow! And yeah, I've got I've got an eighty by eighty now at home, and then I've got three acres down the road, and then probably the the biggest uh, thing that I've done this year is um, or second biggest, anyways. I purchased a an eighty foot greenhouse, so that's uh, oh wow, that's the new big thing. Yeah. Have you uh,
0: installed it yet?
1: It's uh, probably about fifty percent installed. I uh, was installing it there, erecting it, anyways over a couple of days there last week and then I had to skip back here to Guelph to do my last three exams and then on uh, Monday night there I'll be going home for the next uh, four or five months kind of thing.
0: That's and, a, uh, Now are I you using that. it to grow as a as a like a caterpillar uh, greenhouse to grow things in or are you using it as a nursery to start for start? Yeah uh, both <laughs> okay
1: I'm uh, probably about the first <clears throat> 20 or 30 feet is going to be street nursery and then um because I'm, I'm definitely growing a lot of, I've got a pile of strawberry plants and stuff like that. that will actually be uh, for retail coming up soon, as well as some, I'm going to have hanging baskets and stuff too, like ornamental flowers. Oh, cool. Yeah, so those will be popping up. You'll see those for sure on uh, Midlock Farms there on Facebook. Um, and then uh, the rest of it too is going to be, uh, this year it's going to be in ground with uh, like cucumbers and tomatoes and peppers. Now will will
0: you be doing cuz I've been doing a lot of research cuz we're going to take most of Kieran's yeah. garden and make it vertical. Are you doing the same sort of thing or
1: Um yeah, like with the, the nature of those plants, like a lot of them are vining plants, yes. so we will be able to I'm going to be growing them up rather right. than out on a uh, on a trellis system.
0: Right. Cool.
1: Um yeah, for sure vertical is vertical is the future, I think. <laughs> and
0: if people out there don't know and you're thinking about tomatoes, you need to buy indeterminate tomato seeds to grow because they're the vining tomatoes.
1: Yeah. Whereas a determinant tomato, which is probably 80% of what you see at a grocery store or something sitting out front, they'll they'll only get to about four feet tall, right. which
0: is which is great
1: for some applications. Yeah. But, yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Cause we, uh, we started last year, uh, I think one of the first <laughs> crops that we started were tomatoes and I was making some tomato sauce. I was like, you know what? I have to take all of this tomato out to, uh, decrease the amount of liquid in the sauce. I'm just going to harvest the seeds and I just took them right out of the tomatoes and put them in uh, a croissant clear container. And that was my little greenhouse. It was perfect. And then we transplanted all of the tomatoes. I don't know how many hundreds of tomatoes we got out of Kieran's garden. But it was incredible. Yeah, we we had so many. We made salsa. We made tomato sauce. You know, Mm -hmm. we're eating them, putting them in salads and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, it's kind of... It's
1: awesome. Once you have a surplus of something, just how... If you're creative, just how it just pops up into everything, it's pretty cool. Part of part of my passion, the reason I'm down this road is I I just love fresh food, which is kind of why I'm, which is kind of what led to market gardening, right? Like it's just the the, the quality of fresh food is just it's unbelievable. Yeah, it's uh, I think everybody should experience it.
0: They should, you know, uh, when the girls were at home. So this would be, I think, ten years ago now, mm-hmm. maybe even before that. There was a farm. Uh, um, an organic CSA in um, Camborne, North Camborne. And uh, we bought, in, uh, bought a share. So we would get fresh vegetables every week from mm-hmm. May until October. And we never knew what we were getting. It was uh, the farmer's pick, right? Yeah. And uh, once the girls started eating it, they were like maybe 16, 17 years old. And they're like, wow, does this food ever taste better? so since then you know we had gardens when the girls were little which were primarily to keep them busy you know Mm they go out and get snap peas and cucumbers and that sort of stuff and as they grew we kind of set that aside but we went back to the gardening and then with the pandemic and kieran Kieran having her land Mm -hmm. that's where she has the land and sean and i are the stewards of her garden and even bronwyn you know they're they're in Windsor. It's incredible how much further ahead they are in the growing season oh, there it's than crazy we are. Down there. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Like even when I drove down here, because I don't, we don't have stable internet at home. So I had to come down here, unfortunately, and isolate with the pandemic and uh, to write my uh, quizzes. My, not quizzes, exams, right. but just driving along and looking at the wheat fields and stuff, it's just like five inches taller than what we've got at home already. And, and exactly. And it's, just, it's so green. It's, like, oh, it's And, and just, me envious.
0: just for listeners who are not in and around the GTA area from where we live, because Gavin lives 10 minutes north of me almost directly, and Guelph is almost two hours directly west.
1: Yeah, it's pretty much on the dot two hours, I think. Yeah,
0: yeah. And it's a little further south too, so.
1: Yeah, it's a little bit further south, but we've uh, we've got the same amount of heat units here, which is kind of interesting, okay. just because we're a bit further off the water. Right. So uh, the amount of the growing degree days is, is basically the same.
0: And so if people don't know what heat units are, all you yeah. have to do is find a place like, say, Port Hope, which is on the shore of Lake Ontario, and feel what it's like in the summertime. And then you drive a half an hour north to Peterborough, and it could be almost eight or nine, maybe even ten degrees Celsius warmer, because they're not near that thermal mass that helps regulate our micro environment.
1: Yeah, for sure, it's it's
0: neat. Yeah, that's kind of cool. So, um, where do people find your produce from Midlock Farms? Do you actually? I know that last year you tried having an honor system market uh yeah
1: and it it went awesome actually in the end and where
0: where are you going to go back there this year or
1: yeah so i'm going to be on the uh i'm going to be back there again on the side of uh county road nine there just uh just west of the tennis courts and the chip truck there
0: oh and that's at county road 18 that goes up into um oh it's not hardwood it's uh yeah
1: what's the name of that? (laughs)
0: I've ridden my bicycle a million times through that little village. Oh, is uh, is it Plainville? No. Well, yeah, you're in Plainville up on the hill. Yeah. But most people would be familiar with, uh, oh, what the hangs that little town's name just east of Boodily? Yeah. Harwood. Har- yeah. It's Harwood. No, it's not Harwood, is it? Mm, I
1: think so.
0: Oh. Anyways, so just look for Plainville County Road 9 and County Road 18.
1: Yeah, you just drive all the County Road 9 and you'll find me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> in a cornfield. <laughs> no, like I'm, I've, I've got, I've got an address and stuff on, uh, if you are actually, if people are interested in finding it, it's um under Midlock Farms on Facebook there. I've got, I've got a retail address and stuff. Oh, that's like that. good. You can, you can just toss that straight into Google Maps and it'll, it'll take you to my vegetable stand, which is, it is an honor system. Yeah. Um. And I know that was, I think probably what you're hinting at there is uh, last year, the, the beginning of the season, I was receiving quite a bit of theft from it, unfortunately. Yeah, Which you know what? I have really some former students describing. who live
0: in Welcome, and uh, their mom runs uh, Market Garden. And uh, the same thing, theft, whether it was money or, or <clears> produce and that sort of stuff, you know?
1: Yeah, it's, it's really <clears> unfortunate because the thing is, is I have, I grow so much food. It's like, you know, like if, if there was a money issue for someone, it's like, take whatever you need kind of thing. It's, I'm, yeah, I, I like, to, you know, like it's I like, I'm willing to help, like help you. Like it, it doesn't cost me a whole, like it's my time is mainly what I have invested. And if somebody else is hurting and just needs help helped out for a week or a couple of months, you know, right. especially the pandemic, it's hitting a lot of people hard. Right. Exactly.
0: Um, and they're I'm, not as fortunate as us and have the land yeah. that we can, you know, turn into a garden or. Well, yeah, Chickens on.
1: I'm, I'm pretty fortunate working a, being a, a farm employee it's certainly a, an essential worker position um, right so i've i am i it doesn't really uh not too much has actually changed in my day to day life by the pandemic in terms of work it's still you know you got to go out there and if you if you don't plant it it won't grow and if it doesn't grow you can't pay the bills right yeah exactly
0: and you know what's interesting last year when Kieran's a uh, chicken started laying and she has enough that she can sell eggs to friends and that sort of stuff mm-hmm. she didn't know how much to charge and she was uh She worked out all her expenses and that sort of stuff. And then she says, okay, well, it costs this much, but I have my time. And that means I'd have to sell eggs for seven or eight dollars a dozen. And people would probably not want to do that. And, And um, uh, buy them is the issue. Yeah. yeah, So I said, uh, Kieran, welcome to the realizations about farmers, about business in general. Yeah. Yeah. You know what? They work so hard. Yes, they have land. They have all this equipment that the bank probably owns and that you're paying off. Yeah. And uh, you know the long hours and they're working for, you know, less than a dollar an hour or something like that.
1: Oh yeah, it's. I'd be. I. I'm. I'm a. I'm an employee of my dad's business, and that pays for my schooling and stuff. Is the the main benefit, but I'd be. I'd be scared to look at what he makes per hour. It's, yeah, you do it for it's the well love. Well below minimum wage it's yeah probably around the ten dollar or under um, yeah. but the thing is the neat thing is is sure you're not bringing home a, a great wage per year but you are building equity you're paying off farms right right so that it's it's not a liquid asset but it is an asset
0: that's right and and that uh helped me to explain to her it's like okay so if you've got a thousand acres mm-hmm. and you're making this much money how much more difficult it is to is it to add another thousand acres, or, yeah. or even one acre, or expand your little market garden or kitchen garden? Uh, there's not that much effort, you know. We were we would grow up, uh, or when the girls were growing up, we'd be at the cottage and we have friends there, and they have a few kids and our two kids, and we never knew how many kids we were having for lunch. Some days we might have five, six, seven. Some days we might have two or three. Some days none. But when you're cooking for a couple of kids. There's no extra effort to cook for a few more kids.
1: Yeah. Like if you can, I think the easiest way of saying that is if you can do something really well on 10 acres and as long as you've got the management there in order to, to, as long as the management's present, it's, it, you can scale anything, right? Like right. it's, if you, if you can do it on 10 acres, you can do it on a thousand. Right. As long as you're able to scale it proportionally and sustainably. Yeah. Like, like c- c- certain things don't become sustainable at, at larger scales, but
0: yeah. Well, I have. Do you know Aaron and Tyler at um, yeah. Forger's Farms? Yeah. So they're increasing their small organic farm. And up mm-hmm. until now, they've had a BCS, which is a walk behind tractor. It's like a, a mega heavy duty tiller that you can yeah. put implements on and that sort of stuff. And they've just purchased a tractor. Uh, they had antique tractors, but they've just purchased a, a newer tractor oh, no. and uh, they've added more land. So as they grow, that tractor whether they're working on 2 or 3 acres can now work 40 or 50 acres.
1: Well, that's that's the nice thing about a, a tractors is, is they don't they don't mind how many hours a day they work. Correct. <laughs> they don't complain. As long as you do your maintenance for them and keep them full of fuel, they're good to go.
0: Yeah. I remember we were working on Kieran and Henry's septic system and we had the miniest of excavators. Yeah, we were maniac. able to, we were able to drive it into the garage because the people who built their house put part of the septic system in the garage. And the shovel on the front of it was maybe 14 inches by 14 inches. Like it was so okay. tiny. And the guy that we borrowed it from, he has a landscaping company. And he said his employees laughed, said we could shovel more than that thing. He goes all day without complaining, without taking any breaks. And that's yeah, the advantage exactly. of the equipment, right?
1: I, I don't think there's any, I don't know anybody out there that can, uh, if I don't think you could put the same amount of people, like, you know, if you look at a 10 minute, what an excavator can do in 10 minutes, you throw the same amount of people at it through the same amount of oh, yeah. minutes. No, those same amount of people won't be able to do the same amount for 14 hours. No, exactly. You know, yeah. They'll they die. <laughs>
0: yeah. Yeah. That's kind of cool. <laughs> yeah. so, so, the other thing that we could talk about so we've talked about your education, we've talked about, yeah, about uh, midlock farms and that sort of stuff. Uh, how did you, what was your attraction to doing your market garden?
1: Um, I think definitely part of it was um, like growing up, growing row crops, definitely had a, has a ingrained agriculture in me from a young age. I think Um, always loved it. There was a period of time there where I kind of rejected it almost and thought I was going to go a completely different direction. I was looking at engineering. Yeah. Like like most kids
0: growing up on a farm. Yeah. They, they they experienced the hard work and they're like, yeah, I don't want to do that the rest of my life.
1: Yeah. From about grade eight to grade probably, 10 i was like nope not gonna farm and then grade 11 grade 12 all of a sudden i'm applying for a, a school that specializes in agriculture right. so a pretty big turn on the head there um but yeah i think definitely just i i love like watching plants grow is just it's a there's something super satisfying about it watching your fruits of your labor just mature and right become something amazing whether it's with uh wheat corn or vegetables like it's just yeah. it's amazing
0: yeah you stand back and it's like yeah i grew this
1: yeah i did that
0: yeah yeah, yeah exactly I,
1: I facilitated it anyways <laughs> right right
0: Yeah, you, know, you know what that was the same thing as when i worked as a carpenter you know you would stand back at the end of the day and it's like whoa oh, we yeah, were able to I do that out. much yeah you, you get immediate satisfaction and then when yeah. i when moved into teaching it was like how long before i get job satisfaction out of this job and I'm sure that there are a lot of people stuck in that sort of mentality, but it took me a good five years before I actually started to get some job satisfaction from teaching.
1: Yeah. I think part of that too is, is probably right when you first started teaching you're probably, well, knowing who you are, maybe you weren't, but I know probably a lot of people are probably super nervous and stuff. And it takes them a little bit of time before they fall into their groove and really feel comfortable. Right.
0: Well, you know what? Yes. But I was really lucky because I worked I, my First job right out of university was shop teacher. Well, not right out of university. I did work in a logging camps in northern Ontario. But, yeah, shop teacher. So I had one lesson prep for the grade 7s, and I had like five or six classes there. And then I had one lesson prep for the grade 8s, which was another five or six classes. So mm-hmm. I really benefited, actually my, my life benefited from the simplicity of that. I have some colleagues who taught specific topics, subjects, and they hated it they thought it was boring. And I was like, you know what, the freedom that having one prep or two preps for 10 classes allowed me to enrich the other parts of my life, which was generally riding my bicycle.
1: <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. I think that's probably definitely both a big part of both of our lives is when you start looking at of agriculture and like jobs, I guess, uh, we're both very into to activities, right? Like we both telemark ski and yeah. I love whitewater kayaking and you're, Super into stand up paddleboarding and stuff like that. That's and, right. And, yeah,
0: I think I would be more into whitewater kayaking if I had learned how to do a roll before I almost yeah. drowned.
1: Yeah, I think that's like anything, right? A bad experience can kind of put you off something. Yeah, but that but
0: doesn't yeah. that doesn't you know. I'll go out kayaking uh, mostly yeah. flat water. Yeah, but I love yeah. I love tripping in a canoe. You can take more gear than in a kayak.
1: Oh yeah, canoe tripping is amazing. You go into the the back country of Algonquin and. They're, Wabakimi and it's just, it's breathtaking.
0: Have, have you uh, seen, I think it's Kevin Kalnan Yeah. Yeah, so I, I went to a talk that he was giving at the Coburg Library one day and uh, first words out of his mouth were, uh, who here has been tripping where you didn't have to portage? And I was I was <laughs> the only guy who put my hand up and he goes, you're a smart man. Because <laughs> yeah. he's been paddling in the backcountry for years and there was a time in his career that he was uh, rediscovering the old uh, canoe routes yeah. in northern Ontario. And, my gosh, the pictures that we saw were the rivers that we, he would go up with all the log debris and that sort of stuff, uh, you know, and how he would have to drag his canoe up and over. And sometimes where there was no water that, you know, years ago there was it was, it was insane
1: yeah or the river was just too low in spots beaver dams change yeah. levels and yeah. all sorts of things yeah so
0: like gavin you know he's an outdoor enthusiast but he's he's like a outdoor ed student he's into winter camping he will go up into algonquin park in the coldest nights and yeah and that sort of stuff and
1: yeah i spent five nights in algonquin uh this past winter actually when the lockdown kind of eased off during the winter and right it was a lot of fun and i think uh winter camping is one of those things you know you you can kind of suffer in the moment or whatever but you look back on it like "Oh, that was fun
0: exactly yep yeah yeah you know that was like my first uh paddling trip on lake superior we put in at wawa we took out at montreal river harbor uh, and it's like 70 i don't know if it's 70 miles or 70 kilometers it's like
1: 70 something
0: yeah it's that's a long way man you know and it's and i'd never done that i've only been used to paddling in and around my cottage and some rivers and out here in lake ontario and that sort of stuff but uh i really love paddling on lake superior (laughs) you can get out there and other than your paddling partner you don't see other people for two or three weeks
1: yeah for sure like i i love it like i think definitely kind of outdoor like education and sports is definitely my uh my secondary passion to agriculture or right I'm, i think you know this but i'm uh these uh this this upcoming year in this past year i've actually been the president of the uh, university of guelph outdoors club which is right pretty cool yeah so yes. yeah which is i think definitely our motto is uh instilling in uh like outdoor um like uh not oh, shoot It's uh, like, yeah, we're getting people outside that have never been outside, right? So, like, we're taking a pile of uh, international students that are on exchange and stuff like that in Dauganquin. Right. And it's just, it's so cool to see the reactions and stuff.
0: Right. You know what? I was just thinking of an opportunity. We'll talk about it when we're finished this interview. Just remind me of the TSO youth stuff. And um, so telemark skiing. Why Mm -hmm. did you get into telemark skiing? (laughs) Other than you probably saw me and was like, yeah, that's cool, man.
1: <laughs> Saying it now, I think uh, my uh, my my smart aleck reply would be to suffer, but uh, <laughs> I don't know. You, you,
0: you know Adam Sourween, right? Yeah. Anyways, he's got a podcast, and uh, he talks about uh, I can't remember his exact quote, but it's like <laughs> his level of th- the ability to suffer he equates to his level of fitness, which there is no correlation. No, you know, but he, he just likes to get out there and suffer.
1: Yeah. I think, uh, I think your level of fitness can just let you suffer more. <laughs> let you go further. Um, right. But definitely, uh, the reason I got, I think the reason I got into it was, um, it was, Oh gosh, pray. I must've been probably 10 or something. I can remember just skiing at our, our home hill, Brimacombe there. Right. Which is, uh, also was the Oshawa ski club and Kirby previously to that. Um, I can just remember, I don't know if it was you or who it was, but I can just remember seeing a couple of telemark skiers, you know, and just watching them go down the hill. And it was just like, that's, I want to do that.
0: Right. Yeah. yeah, And you know, Gavin talks about how we kind of met, but he, he forgot that we've kind of been intertwined in each other's lives for a lot longer than he thinks. Yeah. Because his mom taught both of my girls. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. For sure. For sure, yeah, no, it was definitely, I can remember being super nervous when I was like, oh, I'll just reach out to Keith. He told he him our team, like, I can remember being like, oh gosh, who is this man, you know, yeah. like, <laughs> who, who are you reaching out
0: to? Yeah, I remember your your mom, I think, bought you skis for Christmas, yeah. used skis.
1: S- set of used skis from uh, the city garage. Yeah. And they, they uh, had
0: the G3 Targa binding on it. They had, what were they, K2? They
1: were K2, uh. I think they say telemark right on it. They, they do, yeah, like but I don't
0: know up. if they were like heli-pieced or... Totally pieced, maybe? Totally pieced, possibly.
1: Yeah, I don't have, I normally have them under my bed. Right. Um, like, that's where I keep all my skis here yeah. well. So I, I took them home. So
0: I sent I sent his mom, Sherry, off to uh, Sojourn and uh, got him a pair of boots, 75 millimeter boots, and uh, he's been skiing that ever since. I remember yeah. the first day. I was yeah, skiing so with him. I I saw his skis, but I did take out a, another pair of skis. And uh, Gavin made a lot of great progress. And I was like, okay, you suffered all morning on those skis.
1: I'd suffered like three days before that. I'd been oh really? Three times oh, okay. All day.
0: Yeah. All right. So then I said, you know what? Why don't you try these? So he tried them, and at the end of the day, it's like, you know what? You can just have those. They were a, a set of Black Diamond Havocs with O1 bindings or O-2s? O-2s. O twos. O twos. Are they okay?
1: Yeah, instead of uh, ridiculously stiff cartridges, O2 bindings. Right. Yeah. Awesome bindings. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, did,
0: did you have the problem with the cartridges unscrewing on you?
1: I'll be honest. I remember way back, uh, this is probably the totally wrong way to solve it, but as far as I'm as long as you just don't really move it. Right. I think you get a bit of water in there, and then it kind of just freezes, so right. I don't move. <laughs> but I, I do know some people put a piece of duct tape around the two of them to stop them spinning. and I, right. I do fiddle with them to readjust them, but I, I don't know. I haven't really been bothered to put a piece of tape on yeah. them. It's not that big of an issue.
0: Right. You know, it's going to be exciting to get you out on NTN see what your reaction is like. Because I remember well, trying, yeah. trying NTN when I was in uh, Free Heel Life visiting them for a week, and we crammed my feet into a size 29 boot. Oh, God and I went uh, I usually wear a 30 and a half uh, yeah. 75 millimeter boot and yeah.
1: uh, I try to get a 29.5 boot, the 30 shell so
0: right yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. so that's day. what I have I have an extra pair of 30s so you'll uh, you'll like those mm. yeah and then, and then I remember I I don't know maybe I'm totally oblivious or something like that I adapted very easily to NTn I didn't have a problem but it might also be my size too right
1: yeah, like I'm sure just the uh, the, the original torsion, like uh, that's associated with that binding, right? Yeah. Just I'm sure, like, I, I can remember skiing with you, and I remember, like, I remember you blowing out of a, a set of bindings like, once or twice. I can remember thinking, oh my God, how did he do that? But well, I was like, Look you mean like just crashing,
0: guy. right? Just crashing. Yeah.
1: yeah. I, I can remember, I don't know where, I don't know where at Calvin or where we were, but I can remember there was this awesome little hump, and we were both oh. just flying off. Yeah.
0: It. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And I can remember you're, probably only a foot in the air, but like for like 20 feet. And I can remember you just hitting the ground and then all of a sudden seeing one of your skis, just leash and everything broke. And yeah, just exactly.
0: You know what? That was world telemark day at Caledon a few years ago before NTN. I was on the, uh, the OG yeah. bomber Bishop and I yeah. had wiped out and somehow my ski had cut the leash and halfway or a third of the way down the pitch, my ski just barrel straight down to the bottom of the hill.
1: Yeah, I can't remember if, maybe, or did you rip, you might have ripped the whole binding out, maybe. Even. Nope,
0: no, I've <laughs> nope. never done Just any of that. Yeah, because you know what, we talk, I, I watch things on forums. I'll probably <laughs> yeah. get in trouble, but you know what, there's not that many telemark skiers. And when I talk to the guys, you know, like Todd and Tony and Dave and Sasha, we all agree that it's bad technique when people are damaging their equipment. Now, you know, some equipment really isn't... Uh, maybe it's a bit more delicate yeah yeah exactly and uh you know we take we take a look at some of the our friends who are also skiers telemark skiers and look at the problems that they've had and being my size and like todd joel and dave Kilborn's a real hard skier and yeah sasha and you know uh even um steve Kahn. you know he's he's a big guy and we don't seem to have the equipment failures that some people have now. Yeah. Over age, things will fail.
1: Well, even I don't know. Even look at me, for instance. I'm not a small guy by any means, and I know you go onto the forums, and if you just, I'm sure you could just write the words uh, like BDO2 and and people just be like they'd be hating on them and saying they tear out. But I've had those on those 185 Havocs, and yeah, uh, you know me, I'm I'm not afraid of a little speed.
0: No, <laughs> or air, or air, or air. Yep. Yeah. Or or hucking, I, hucking cliffs and stuff.
1: Yeah. I'll just go. Yeah. Yeah. I can I can remember my dad the first time we were skiing at Tremblant, He hadn't really skied with me a whole lot at this at this point when I've been on telemark. And I remember we were just going down the side of the run and there's a bunch of medium jumps that were just lock, loping down it. And I can remember him just seeing the head towards I and mean, we I remember him thinking he was, I was out of control or something and I was just just boom, just off them and stomping it. Right. He's just like, Oh my god, I didn't know you could do that on those and I'm like, Oh yeah.
0: Yeah, it's it's incredible. You know what? Like when I listen to Josh's podcast and Taylor's on there and Craig Dostey yeah. and they're talking about telemark skiing and you know what? I agree with those guys. You, you get out on the gear that you have because I've gone back to the uh, volet uh, or, or as you know, that, that's how Americans say it. I always chide those guys in Salt Lake City and I, I always say like volet, not volet, voile. Yeah. and they are three pin binding. I've gone back to skiing that with my leather boots During the pandemic time, because, you know what, the only hill that I was up to a certain point was out in Kieran's Field, and it might be 40 feet tall, (laughs) and and maybe two or three degree pitch, and uh, I was able to do a few telemark turns, you know, being able to be on that gear much easier than my cross country gear.
1: Yeah, and, like, I, I wish I had a set of uh, leather boots. I've been keeping my eye open for a set of big ones that come up. There's lots of size 10 ones and stuff. Oh, but,
0: okay. Well, I didn't know you were looking for leather boots. I'll have to keep an yeah. eye also. Yeah.
1: Um, but I know, like, I picked up a set of, uh, I think they're um, I think they're Blizzard skis. They're, like, 210 or 220 centimeters long, straight skis. And they're with that. They're all with the old voile binding on. It. They were actually a releasable binding from way back. Oh, in the day. you've
0: got the plate with uh yeah yeah with
1: that crazy cartridge thing sticking out the front.
0: Exactly right. Yeah, okay.
1: but I remember just getting on there, and I'm you know I got my three buckle like heavy composite boots, and I'm just I'm strapping into these things. I'm like all oh, this is, I'm gonna tear these things apart. Like the skis are already delaminating. Like I got them for right. free, yeah, classic yeah, marker fashion, right? Um, yeah. Dirt basically bag to the dumpster, right? Yeah. <laughs> Um, and, uh, yeah, but they, I had a riot on those, just skiing at Glen Eden on those. It is. Yeah. It's,
0: it's, yeah. It's, you know what? And you know what? That's exactly why Josh, he makes all the people in his shop, uh, ski leather boots and straight yeah. skis. So that, you know what, when they have clients coming in, you're a well-rounded retail person and you can have that conversation, you know, with somebody. I remember teaching a guy on a Wednesday night. He's more experienced than I am, and that's my polite way of saying he's older. And (laughs) uh, he had never really been on plastic boots and shaped skis. Yeah. So I took him out for a lesson, and uh, he really enjoyed it. But he said he would uh, prefer skiing on his straight skis and uh, leather boots and asked if I could continue giving him lessons on that. And I was like, well, only under one condition, if I can ski my leather boots and straight skis. (laughs) And so we had a blast. Uh, I don't remember his last name, but his first name, I believe, was Larry. And, uh, you know, I would go from uh, teaching a lesson on modern equipment with, uh, you know, T-race boots and uh, what's uh, probably my uh, vocal kendo skis, and then I would Mm -hmm. go into K2 heli pieced with uh, a three-pin binding and my leather boots. And, And, you know what, the first run... Down, I don't know, have you ever skied um oh, where is it that I used to teach in Toronto there in the north end?
1: Oh, I know what you mean. Um yeah. I haven't. Yeah. That's I, where I think Holly skis there quite a bit. That's right, right. yeah, because I was working
0: yeah. for anyways. Um down that pitch, which might be two hundred well, less than Yeah, 200. a couple hundred feet max. Yeah. I, I felt like three times, you know, like it's yeah. like, oh, right. You cannot carve these things. You have to kind of smear the turns. and You got to slide. Yeah. yeah. And so when I was watching in the initiation of guys in Josh's retail store this year, all the wipeouts that they have. But you know what? That's ha- That's the fun of skiing. Well, and I really
1: do have to believe that I think it's maybe I'm, Like, I don't know, you go into the forums and people are like, oh, NTN's the future. Everybody needs to switch to it. That's the only way we're going to get progression within the sport. But I think, you know what? Like, I think almost like you look at NTN, 75 mil, and then like three pin before it was, and even 75 mil with straight skis and three pin with straight skis. I think they're almost all different sports. Like they're, yeah. like, I think they all flow and progress into one another and complement each other. But I don't think you can say one's better than the other. Like they're all just, they're different.
0: Yeah, exactly. But the the only uh, thing is that why they're saying NTN is is the future is yeah. because nobody's gonna go back and, and No,
1: nobody's building seventy five mil stuff. Yeah. Yeah. No.
0: So we just all Not have much. to dumpster dive and trade yeah. things off with people, worn out stuff.
1: But that's I don't know. Like, I, I I equate that almost to people saying, Oh, you shouldn't buy hardtail bikes. Right. You know, like it's you should only buy full suspension and it's like ah, you know. I hate
0: I hate full suspension bikes. Now I I've I'm, never ridden one. Oh, yeah. man, they absorb. Well, I, I may not ride it in the right spot, but uh, I find it it absorbs a lot of my energy. Yeah. Like even you know my my mountain bike I used in the wintertime to commute, and uh, you know, mm-hmm. you know the school where I teach, I have a hill both ways across the valley, and every time I'd be riding that front suspension going up the hill, I felt as if. Oh, it's just, it it's was just a, taking energy away from pedaling up the hill. Unless I was doing it wrong.
1: I i don't think you were like, that's, 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 that's one of the, that's one of the, f- the fatal flaws with that system, right? Is anytime you add springs, you're, you're absorbing, uh, you're absorbing energy, right? Yeah.
0: And I remember Steve Kahn telling me the real reason why they developed that front suspension was to stick turns in, in berms and that sort of stuff. Yeah. You know, instead of crashing up and over them.
1: Yeah. Like I, I know, might be wrong. Yeah. Uh, I know my uncle, uh, like avid cyclist as well, but when I uh, know he was down in um, Moab, I think, and he rent, he rented a full suspension bike for a day down there. And it was right. like, you know, like a, like a $7,000 bike kind of thing that you rent for a couple hundred bucks. Right. Um. And he, like, he just had a blast on it. And he's like, at first I was a little bit nervous about it. Like it had dropper seat and stuff on it. Like, yep. air, like it was, it had all the, the gadgets. Right. Yeah he's like, I was just looking at these trails. I was like, Oh my God. Like there's like 10 foot cliff drops and stuff. And he's just like, he's like, like, he's a, he's a competent cyclist. Right. But, um, but hadn't really ridden a full suspension before. And I know he was just saying, he's like, Oh my gosh, it was amazing. Like what you could, what a full suspension bike allowed me to do. Right. Like if I'd been on a, he's like, if I'd been on a hardtail, there's not a chance I would have thought about right. right. He's like, I'm not good enough. He's like, yeah. there's some people that could, but
0: yeah.
1: yeah. But I know he'd also, he's like, I asked him what it was worth, and he's like, "Yeah, can't justify that for riding in Ontario." He's just like, "It's just different kinds of riding, right?"
0: Exactly. Yeah. So you know that'd be more of a downhill bike, probably.
1: Yeah, like a downhill yeah. bike, or like, um, or just like, a, like a, like a, a bike for like if you're doing like trails with like a lot of like elevation change with big drops and big right. moves, right? Yeah. yeah. You see a lot of guys that like them for downhill for sure.
0: Right. Well, I think uh, we're getting near the end of this yeah when when's your we, next exam
1: it's um uh, my next exam is six forty five on monday night and it's two hours so that's going to be a grain cross so that's all about again going back to those row crops and stuff that my family grows so it's so right i think it should be a bit of a walk in the park to be honest i'm
0: oh i don't say it. that man you know i'm married to a murphy you better reach out and find some real wood to touch because uh, <laughs> uh sh- 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 stuff goes sideways when people say that you know yeah. Mur- murphy's law
1: yeah, no, I know. Uh, I don't really. Yeah, I've I've hammered through all my other exams, and it's it's kind of nice to be getting to the end. But you still got to stick to it, right? And
0: right. Well, I uh, I want to say thanks for uh, spending an hour with me. Yeah. And uh, educating me and some of the listeners. And mm-hmm. uh, don't forget Midlock Farms in the Coburg, Port Hope area, up by Rice Lake County Road Nine and County Road Eighteen where yeah. oh yeah you said to just to uh, go on your facebook page and there'll be an address and that sort yeah, of
1: yeah facebook there. or instagram i'm, I'm there right. zero till farm on instagram midlock farms on uh, facebook they used to be the same but uh right kind of started building a zero till farmer brand there a couple of years ago for some reason that's awesome <laughs> Make things more confusing for everybody right
0: yeah all right well you take it easy my friend tell uh your parents yeah. that i said hi and uh i can't wait to uh as we say all the time That this shit is done. Yeah. All right. Well, you take it easy. All right. Ciao. Ciao. Hey, crew. Just want to thank you for listening in to the Skippy Report and allowing Gavin and I to nerd out on agriculture, telemark skiing, and a little bit of outdoor adventures. Check back in a couple of weeks for the next episode of the Skippy Report.